Hello, friends. Today's guest on the podcast is Steve Bechtel. Steve is someone who I have looked up to for many years. I've followed his work for more than a decade, and I still learn something new every time I listen to him or read one of his articles. I'm so excited about this episode. If you haven't heard of him before, Steve is a strength coach and the founder of Climbstrong and provides athletes and coaches with programming advice with the mission of making your training simpler and more effective than ever before. I sat down with Steve right after the 2020 Climbstrong training camp in Lander, Wyoming, and we talked a bit about that. We also talked about changing your mind and some of the biggest changes in the Climbstrong training methodology over the years. We talked about lessons learned from studying sprinting and the implications for us as climbers. We talked about high-low training, developing aerobic capacity to reduce the need for power endurance training, and we talked about alactic intervals, and Steve gave an example of a circuit that a boulderer might do alongside limit bouldering or strength and power training to further reduce the need for power endurance. We talked about the real secrets to success, that's in air quotes, and why Jonathan Segrist and BJ Tilden are both such successful climbers. And we talked about seeing programs through to fruition, about creating better habits, and about Steve's latest book, Logical Progression, Second Edition. I also shared a couple things that I was confused about over the years, and Steve was able to shed some light on balancing training seasons with red pointing seasons, and how to think about choosing the best training program or exercise or hangboard protocol, and I'm using air quotes there as well. A lot of great nuggets in this one, and I've got a very exciting episode coming next week that I think many of you will love, so be sure to stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, please enjoy this mind-changing conversation with Steve Bechtel. We'd come out here for we'd come out here for dinner occasionally and um, hang out with them. And we were like, "Oh, we, this is a great place." And then they they got ready to move, and they they told us, "Well, we want you to buy our house." And we were like, "Fuck, oh, I don't know. We you know we can't afford it. We you know whatever." But we were able to you know that was far enough into our business that you know we I guess became a good risk for the gym. Or you know, for the bank with with the gym as an asset, whatever. Okay. And so we were able to get a loan for it, and um, and then it, but it it's interesting because it's a one bedroom. Like you you just went in and that upstairs loft, like where our TV area is, that yeah. used to be uh, our bedroom. So Ellen, like, okay, Ellen, and I had that as our bedroom for nine years, and no, so no door, nothing. And then <laughs> there was just a little bedroom below that, and that was Sam's room. So okay. then when Annabelle, our daughter, came along pretty crowded and whatever else and then we just last year put on this addition um on the front the, okay the, the new the new gray paint and uh and so now we've got everybody's got a bedroom and it's pretty, nice yeah and it's nice out here it's pretty you know, it's, it's quiet. beautiful yeah it's beautiful out here Good view the mountains and stuff so how many kids do you have two two yeah sam's 12 and annabelle's nine so are they getting into climbing um you know they it's interesting uh annabelle um 
Yes, yes, the, uh, on a, on occasion, but you know they we're just trying to get them exposed to lots of fun stuff, and sometimes they're super into it. Um, Sam is is really into like self teaching himself parkour, and <laughs> <laughs> so um, and and you know we've been fishing and and canoeing a bunch this year, but we were we were in France last summer. Um, and we were climbing at, at this place, Orpierre, which is near Seyus. And we we ended up going to Orpierre a little bit because Seyus would have, the weather would come in and you could still go, into, go to Orpierre because it was steeper and, and shorter approach. And uh, she just got super into it because there's a bunch of easier routes that kids could do. Mm. And what I realized is that climbing at Wild Iris isn't that fun for kids because it's, mm. you know, everything's 514 to six feet off the ground, <laughs> you know, cause, just because the way it's eroded. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you've done those starts where you're just like, whoa, first, first move is like <laughs> the 512 and then it's 58 the rest of the way. Yeah. Um, and and so there are very few routes that were just like, they could get a lot of movement on. Mm. But at Orpierre, it's really neat. It was low angle, lots of horizontal bands. And so about every 18 inches, there's like a pretty good hold okay. on these horizontals. And there are some things there that are super cool. They're like, there are things you and I would climb in approach shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're juggy low angle slabs, but they've bolted them and put anchors on them. And so our kids got to lead and, and have that experience of clipping bolts, you know, and, and lowering off anchors and stuff and, and succeeding on routes, you know, and, and they just don't get that here, you know, so yeah. have to lift them past a move and, mm. you know, then they know they're not doing it. And, yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's really so, cool. So, the long story short, she she really gets into it when we're traveling. But okay. Isn't that into it here? Okay. And so, you know, I guess that means we need to travel more. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, hey, Steve. How you been? Good, man. It's been a long time. I know. I've been trying to make it back here for eight years. I know. Well, <laughs> it's funny because we. We just finished yesterday our uh, training camp here in Lander, and um, it was just kind of ironic timing because you had come to the very first one that we did. And was that was, the very first one? Well, we had done some like, you know, how to weight lift weights or, yeah. you know, like boulder better and things like that. And I had done them. I traveled for them. But the first one where we, I was like, okay, I'm going to get multiple coaches. We're going to advertise it nationwide, bring in athletes from wherever. Um but I think it was, was it 2012? 2012. Yeah. So, yep. so eight years ago. And, and it's interesting cause, um, at that time, nobody had this sort of offering and the people that came were just like super, like the people that were looking anywhere for training mm-hmm. advice. I was hungry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, here you were super young climber, like take all of your money and try to make it, you know, get on the road and go out there and learn, learn something. And, and it's, it's interesting now because the, the landscape of training and climbing has changed a lot, Yeah. but the value of traveling and getting into an intense, um, learning situation is, is not diminished at all. Hmm. And one of the big things that we, we always try to do with these is like answer questions or, or reduce noise for, you know, cause there's so much possible stuff you could do that's the problem now is there's yeah there's too much yeah it's hard to wade through it all yeah and and so when we look at climbing training the problem comes in the complexity of the sport and the number of avenues in which we can improve Hmm. uh you know if we're running 
you know, and we're, say we're, we're track running, we can either run faster or we can go further or mm. we can um, break up, break it up into some intervals, but it, it tends to be somewhat simple and yeah, they need to build explosive power and whatever else, but most athletes end up training primarily in one energy system and really developing that at the cost of the others. Hmm. You can, you know, marathon runners don't need, you know, super high levels of power. Um, they don't need a tremendous amount of anaerobic endurance. Most marathoners will get a very, very high level of aerobic fitness and then just build that and build that and build that and work on, on form and whatever else. But then, you know, here you are trying to send a really hard boulder problem or do a route that's 50 meters long with a crux at the end. Or you know, maybe I'll go try to do the nose in a day. And we start to play on a, a lot of different energy systems and, um, and a lot of different types of movement. Um, you don't get to be like an Olympic lifter, just explosive, you mm. know, you, you know, so it, it becomes very complex. And so the questions always outnumber the answers. <laughs> we were talking at dinner, dinner the other night. And one thing I've always appreciated about you is that you're very readily willing to change your mind about stuff. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's followed your work for a long time, but hasn't been super clued into it in the last couple of years as much. Or I guess in general, you know, for someone who's coming to you now, there's a lot of material out there and it's hard to know where to start with it. You know, yeah. like some of your older stuff doesn't necessarily contradict your newer stuff, but I'm one to to read a compelling article and be like, oh my God, this is like the new, this is the bee's knees. I'm going to mm -hmm. focus on this. And then I read another compelling article that's kind of different and yeah. maybe goes against some of the stuff. And yeah. I was asking you at dinner, I guess... In broad strokes, what are some of the things that you have changed your mind about? And maybe if someone's coming to your material now, what are some of the things that have changed over the years? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about changing your mind. Um, and we use that term, changing your mind, almost with this negative connotation. Mm. But what's fascinating is... A, a synonym for changing your mind is learning. <laughs> and, and that's what we really want our children to do is let, you know, want them to go to school and change their mind or the way that their brain works. And so if I think if there's anyone that's in a field, that's just defending a position and holding their ground, um, they, they've, it's time for them to leave that field. Hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, it's like you write a book, it's a ton of work and you, you put a lot into it and you are, um, you want to defend that work that you did because you want to have been correct, but you've seen it like in, in your beta, like you're working on a route, you're working on a route, you can't do it. Somebody does it a different way and you're like, well, that's not my beta, but then maybe you try it their way and it's easier and you're like, dang it, I was wrong, <laughs> uh -huh. but you're also super psyched because now you can do the route. Yeah. And that was really interesting because I was working a route uh, a couple of years ago and my friend, Alex Bridgewater, who's a, a much better climber than I am, came along and started working it after I did. And I climbed with him a little bit on it and he did a couple of sequences different than I, I did. And he's shorter than I am. He's lighter. He's stronger fingers. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, that's his way of doing it, not mine. But 
in my frustration of failing to do this crux over and over and over, I tried a couple of things that he did. And I was like, oh man, that is actually a better way to do it. Hmm. And so it was a, it's a total gift if you can swallow your ego. Hmm. So the same thing happens with, with training or with methods of training. Um, we, you know, forever you, you know, we look at a sport and we say, how can I simulate this performance environment in order to uh, practice it and get better. And, and famously, like people will build a crux of a route on a climbing wall. Or like I had made a machine once that you could squeeze out, had some springs on it and squeeze for hand jamming. Okay. You know, until I realized that like once you get good at hand jamming, it's the easiest thing in the world to hold on to. <laughs> but you know, like you, you're like, how can I simulate this? How can I make this more like climbing? And then the problem is we get into simulation rather than specificity. And so, for example, and then the primary thing I've, I've changed our, our methods on is training for uh, endurance. And one of the things that we, we used to do was just like throttle the system, really tire the athlete out. And this was in the CrossFit era of, I guess we're still in the CrossFit era, but when I first got started getting interested in CrossFit, um, Gosh, that would have been in like 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we, I had some friends that were doing this high intensity training stuff. Um, and we're like, yeah, man, that's, this is really hard. Just like I feel at the end of a hard day of climbing or a hard pitch, I'm like breathing hard, I'm sweating, I'm exhausted. That must be good training for this. Hmm. And so we developed a lot of ways of training, you know, what we would call anaerobic endurance or what we would call power endurance or strength endurance in, in climbing, ways to really tire out the system. But w- what, what we learned, and I wrote, I did, I wrote this book on power endurance, um, and maybe that was probably around the time of that uh, training camp. Yeah, like I think 2012. so. Yeah. Um, and it's got very good, I, I actually really still like the workouts and the drills in it, but what we've changed is the amount that we prescribe okay, um, and the, and the time of your training cycle that we prescribe because getting really, really tired in, in that zone, that, that, um, lactic or glycolytic energy system is really exhausting, which means you need to recover for a long time from it. And then it's also by necessity at a lower power output than your strength or power could be. Mm. Like if you're doing four by fours, you know, say you're a V10 boulderer, you're not going to do four by fours at V10. Right. You're going to do them at V4 or something. Yeah. And by the end of that session, you're starting to climb very poorly. You're starting to get sloppy and mess around with your footwork. You're, you know, you're slapping around. So your chance of injury increases. Also, with the sloppiness comes a degradation of skill. And one of the things that we've paid a lot of attention to is practice and skill development um, over the last few years. And, you know, spending time breaking down movement and and doing, you know, footwork drills or or hip positioning drills or things like that. And the the key to developing skills and to learning is to being fresh. Mm. And so if I, and one of the really, really fascinating things that's come out of the, the research there is, that if you practice a skill under fatigue and you do enough of that movement, you start to learn the bad movement. So you learn crappy footwork. And so what we really want to do is when, when our skills start to degrade, we can continue to go into that energy system, but we don't want to be doing high skilled movement. Okay. So, so if you're like really trying to develop your power endurance, like for a peak, um, and you're starting to get sloppy on your four by fours, moving into something like 
ladders on a foot on ladders on a campus board or repeaters or something where you're not displaying a high level of climbing skill is probably a little safer for your skills. Interesting. Yeah. Is there a time and a place to practice climbing well under fatigue? Yes. Because I mean, that's something all, all really good sport climbers do so well. Yeah. And, and there's two sides to that. The first thing is, yes, you should do that right as you're moving into a, a peaking phase when you're getting ready to send your, your really hard route. Okay. A couple of weeks of going up against that red line is, is very useful and, and necessary. But you don't. it doesn't take long to ramp up mm. that, that uh, level of anaerobic endurance, which is really a good thing. It's also, it, it has what's called a low level of adaptation persistence. And adaptation persistence is how long a certain facet of fitness stays with you. And so like uh, muscle hypertrophy, for example, has a very high adaptation persistence. Like if you build big, big leg muscles through cycling, yeah. they're going to stay with you. It takes um, longer to get them, but they stick around. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and finger strength is similar. Um, we'll see people that, de- you know, we think our finger strength just went to hell because we stopped. But if you really get high levels of finger strength and then you stop training for f- four months, they're still going to be, you know, within 10% of that max, hmm. you know. And so that that kind of stuff sticks. But um, anaerobic endurance, you know, or, or, or what climbers would call power endurance, um, it's really quick to peak and then it really declines. And you've felt that yourself. Sure. On, um, you know, like you're almost ready to send this route and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm really tired at the end of these days. My power is dropping off. I feel like I need more recovery. And so we go off the backside of it real quickly. Mm. And that's, that's the primary reason that I'm trying to limit the dosage of that. Okay. In, in favor of other, other methods of developing your endurance. So it sounds like this idea of like high, low training it has really stuck around. Yeah. And so you, you and I, I think we even batted some emails back and forth on yeah. that maybe, but, um, we, I started, well, let, let's go back a ways. And so probably even at the time of, you know, maybe 20, 2008, 2010, um, I got really interested in reading about development of speed and power. Okay. And one of the coaches I started studying was Charlie Francis, who was a Canadian track coach. And he was a brilliant coach. And But one of the things he noticed was that his sprinters slowed down. Even on the 100 meter, they would slow down toward the end of the race. Um, and what was happening is they were changing energy systems. They were going from this alactic or ATP-based energy system that provides high, high, high power for very few seconds. Usually, you know, we'll say 10 seconds, but really it's maybe six to eight seconds of, of your highest power outputs. Okay. And then after six seconds, you switch over into this second energy system, which is the lactic or the glycolytic energy system, which is has a little bit more endurance, but provides a little bit less power. And so what he was seeing was that at 60 meters, his athletes started slowing down. And then it would take them longer to recover between sets because they were like a little bit exhausted from that. Mm. And so what he started doing was like, okay, you're fast for 40 meters, you're fast for 50, you're fast for 60. And then at 70 meters, I'm seeing you slow. And so he changed the workouts and he went from having him do six 100 meter repeats, for example, to 10 60 meter repeats. Hmm. So they were doing the same volume of training, but all at this high, high power. And a couple of real interesting things came out of there. Um, they were able to do more volume at their max level and they were less exhausted between burns because they were able to recover better 
because they're only recovering one energy system hmm. rather than trying to recover from this pump, you know, or, you know. Interesting. And, yeah. And, and so there's, there were a lot of lessons there. And the other thing was, uh, track runners often did a lot of junk volume of just like, let's get out there and run. And he found that their, their form was different. They didn't run at the same, uh, the same mechanics. Okay. Um, and that they, it was tiring them out to be doing like, you know, running around the track, doing eight hundreds and stuff. It's like they're fatigued, but does it help them with their speed? And so what he's started advocating was like, yeah, you can go out and do like a recovery style run or go ride your bike or do, do some general activity. But then all of your training needs to be focused at this, at this intensity that you're training. Hmm. He did the same thing with his 800 meter runners and, and his, his longer distance runners focusing their energy on, on the particular energy system. But one of the things that came out of that was the, the high, low model of training either in this super high power energy system or in your aerobic energy system, that third energy system and avoiding the middle system because the middle system, again, the problems there is you can't put out the same amount of power. And it's really hard to, hard to recover from. Mm. Aerobic endurance is pretty easy to recover from, which is really good because it also has a short adaptation persistence. And that's why like a runner runs every day. Because okay. if you stop doing endurance like that, it does, it degrades very quickly. You know, it, it, your max aerobic levels. So when we started looking at high low we're like okay how do we model this for climbing how does it how does it work and and when do we schedule it because you know that we we end up using that middle energy system f really for most climbing mm -hmm. um a boulder problem takes longer than seven seconds um, i think i remember you i think i remember reading at one point that you were really impressed with the high low program overall but it was kind of disastrous for your boulderers yes yeah yeah and so what we started learning with bouldering is that they needed to develop what we would call a lactic capacity this ability to do continuous hard movements, you know, like how can I get more good high quality movements in a given session? Mm. And it's not that fun to do boulder problems. Like interestingly, just a quick tangent, uh, limit bouldering tends to be a lactic because people very often, if they're on a real hard boulder problem, aren't on the wall for more than five to seven seconds. Sure. They're trying one or two moves at a time. Yeah. But then when, when you finally get to the point that you're bouldering, like very few boulders are that short, right? And so we tend to we tend to get to a situation that a boulder is right in the middle of that that lactic energy system. And so then we have to be really careful of just spending too much time developing that middle system with even with a boulderer. And so we got we got sort of clever and started building these these interval workouts that would develop the system. And then they could go and just go bouldering and practice their sport. Mm. And so you're training in the system, um, but you're not having to artificially make the bouldering that weird. Okay. Um, and uh, and that seems like it's working pretty well. Okay. Um, and we're we're seeing good results there. And so an example of of the alactic system is high high power or strength outputs that just just for the sake of simplicity are less than ten seconds in length. And so you can do uh, like a little interval circuit with that and you can use, um, you can use some non-specific modes and train that system very well. And so what we want to do, we want to think about what climbing is, you know, we use the whole body. We tend to 
be sometimes static or, or strength-based, uh, and sometimes we're really explosive-based. Very rarely do we need a ton of speed, so like s- sprinting is probably not appropriate, but jumping is very appropriate. You know, you think about bouldering, there's so much uh, movement out of the hips and things like that. And so what we started doing is like building in a circuit. We had a lot of people during the COVID uh, shutdown in the spring that were doing these things at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, an example of a circuit would be like, I have a campus board um, at the gym that's, you know, set up right next to an area where you can do weights and, uh, and pull-ups and things like that. And so I would do a circuit that was, I'd do a campus ladder, just up the campus board one time again, you know, seven, or so seconds, maybe it's like three hits on each side, jump down. And then, you know, like we just have it on a rolling 30 second clock. So I do seven seconds on, take 23 seconds. And then I'd go do something that's, that's a different movement. So instead of going campusing again, which would clearly start to exhaust my system, I'd go and I'd do box jumps, jump onto a, a box, maybe three to five reps. But again, trying to stay in that duration the box jump acts as a stimulus to the system, but it also acts as a recovery from campusing because you're, you're not doing the same, you know, campusing is very much finger and forearm focused. And so then I maybe would move from the box jumps, do those three to five times, rest the remainder of that 30 seconds. And so at the end of that rest, I'm a minute into my circuit. Then maybe I do like a weighted pull up or a power pull up, something I can transition into really quick. Um, three reps of a pull up rest the remainder of 30 seconds, and then maybe we can do a uh, edge hang or a kettlebell swing. But usually it's about five exercises, and then we take a little bit of a break, make it about a three-minute circuit. Okay. And then you can just repeat those. And, and really what we try to do then is over the course of several workouts, keep increasing the intensity of those efforts, you know, make the campusing, you know, like longer reaches, smaller holds, whatever, higher box jump, a little bit more weight on the pull-up, whatever it is. But we're not messing with the the work to rest ratio. We're just mm. increasing the intensity of the power output, letting the person recover completely. And then after maybe, oh, you know, eight or so of those workouts, which can be you know several weeks, of course, then we can start turning it into actual to peaking it and and going into a little bit more power endurance. Okay. And so you could take that same circuit and start changing the rest periods, mm. um, or you could go. I'm going to go up the campus ladder twice or something like that, where you're, where you're starting to really start to tax that, that system and the ability of your body to recover. But at that point, you're at these really high levels of power. Mm. And then we can just really carefully try to increase that rather than like jump and ship and going like, okay, now I'm going to go do laps on V2s. Because mm. then we're not doing high power outputs anymore. And most people's goals don't involve climbing, you know, easier than they did in the past. And so <laughs> what we want to make sure is that we are pushing that level to where we can really arrive at a crux boulder problem on a route and be as fresh as possible. Okay. If you were to chart it out or to look at it in graphic form, at the very, very low end of power output, you would have your aerobic zone where you where can do it easily. And everybody like arc training or... Yeah, exactly. Or just like climbing, like if you and I went out into the mountains and we were, we were swapping leads on a 5.7, we're not going to get exhausted um, and get pumped off the thing. We're not going to get a hold that we can't pull on. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be very, very aerobic. And we can... We can pretty much a athlete with any kind of capacity can continue at some low level of aerobic movement 
as long as they can stay awake and <laughs> as long as they can fuel it, right? Mm. Like if you and I just started walking out across the desert here, we would, we could just walk until we wanted to sleep and eat, and then we could get up again and do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, if we started sprinting out of here, we'd you know make it to the you know end of the block, and then you're like, okay, let's rest, <laughs> and then I and then tomorrow I'm not going to feel like doing it. Mm. And so what we really want to do is increase that aerobic zone through uh, methods like arc training or things that are maybe a little more entertaining for the brain. Cause it takes a special person to go through a whole cycle of arc. Right. Totally. Um, and so, um, but increase your aerobic capacity and then that middle zone, we would call like the aerobic power zone or, or what we call power endurance. We want that thing to shrink. You're basically trying to bring your aerobic threshold closer to your anaerobic threshold. Mm. Your anaerobic threshold is, it's great to move it up and you can do that through some, some specific training too. But the smaller the zone that you're climbing when you're like getting pumped or when you're in power endurance, it's really good to get rid of that. And that you've probably seen that like when you've developed and you've finally gotten the endurance to do a route that felt power endurancey, And then you're like, you get to the crux and you're feeling pretty fresh. It's probably because you've got more aerobic metabolism going on and less anaerobic. Mm. And so you can be fresh. A lot of people just train to be able to handle being pumped. But if you can increase your aerobic capacity, you're actually developing the ability to not get pumped in the first place. Mm. So that's the low. And so then when we're training the high, it's like with those alactic intervals and just pure strength and power. If we can build pure strength and power, um, you get to where things aren't that hard to hold on to. Mm. Like you've, you know, the Zlogboard test is really interesting because they just get people on there and they just hang till they fail. Yeah. And at, at a certain level, there are some climbers that can just hang on that thing and they're not gripping hard enough that their blood stops flowing Mm. and it's, it's, it feels really easy. So they're just chill on it. And they can hang there for, you know, three minutes or something. It's kind of like doing a thousand reps with a one pound weight or yep, something. Exactly. Okay. And, and so, and all of us have that level. And so I think it's really interesting, um, going back to not being bored with, uh, arc training, the route four by four is a really cool workout. And, um, and it's, it's also a really easy one for people to mess up. Okay. Um, cause you, you like, well, let me just put it this way. The route 4x4 is set up this way. You go to the gym or to the crag and you lead a pitch and lower down and then immediately top rope it three times afterwards with no rest. Okay. And um, like, you know, you're a 513 climber and so you could probably go out and do a 12A and lead it and then do it three times, but you would be maxed out by the fourth round of that. Okay. And then when I say, okay, we're going to rest 10 minutes and you're going to do it again, you're going to be totally tapped out. And so we're totally power endurance zone there. The intensity is too high. Okay. And so with this aerobic development, if you really want to develop aerobic capacity, you need to you know, not be seeking out fatigue. You need to be seeking out the level at which you can climb without being fatigued. And so what I would do is prescribe an athlete, let's go into the gym and climb, you know, like 16 pitches at all is pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So route four by four is, you know, climb around top rope three times, then rest while your buddy does it. Or if you're alone, you just rest, you know, and wait the same amount of time. So maybe it takes you 15 minutes to climb it three times or four times. Then you do it again. And then, you know, for... So if it takes 15 minutes, you take 15 minutes rest in between rounds. Yep. Okay. And then we do, you know, group two, 
another route and three top rope laps, group three and group four. So you get a total of 16 pitches, which is quite exhausting. And it can be just a total killer if you go too hard. But what mm-hmm. we want is for it to be relatively easy. And we, we, so we give three cues on how to make sure that the intensity is correct. Perfect. So the number one cue is to do nasal breathing, to mm. be able to do the climbing without opening your mouth. And so that right there, it, I mean, some people can't walk down the street without doing that. <laughs> and so, but the really cool thing, and there is a gigantic and fascinating facet of sports science that has everything to do with breathing, but nasal breathing allows us to breathe more deeply into our lungs so we can deliver oxygen better, um, but if we can build that habit. Otherwise, we're breathing like, I, the way they describe it is from the top of our lungs, mm. you know, in and out the mouth, in and out the mouth, shallow breathing. Um, and we can't develop the aerobic system optimally that way. Interesting. Um, but the main thing is, you know that you're anaerobic if you're starting to, to have labored breathing. Mm. Um, and so nasal breathing is a really good cue. The other good cue Uh, The second guideline we give people is to be able to be at conversational intensity. You can talk to your belayer the entire time that you're climbing. And uh, that's usually where we are on our warm-up pitches. Like you and I show up at the crag. We're kind of chatting it up the first couple of pitches. We do a couple of pitches of 510. And then we go over and we both do a 512 that we know well. Um, But even at 12A, you know, we're going to go out and climb 513 today. But even on that 12A, you and I are probably going to shut up and start focusing, Mm. breathing hard. You know, you'll maybe converse for the first two bolts and then get to work. Yeah. But what we want is for you to be able to stay at that intensity. So probably 12A is too hard for you. Okay. Conversational intensity. So is the second cue for, for a route four by four. And then the third cue would be just to have a light fatigue or no pump. Um, and so that's the thing is like, if you're starting to like have to rest and actively shake out or drop your hand, the intensity is too high. We really want you to be gripping holds that don't cause full occlusion in the forearm. Okay. Which, because when you when you really pull down hard, you, the muscles in your forearm cut off all blood flow, mm. and so that is a real uh, a real piece of when you start getting fatigued and getting pumped. And so if you can hang on loosely enough that you're you're not getting completely occluded, that's probably a really good a really good cue. Okay. The other thing with you know, so that's that's good aerobic capacity training. But you know, going and doing route four by fours, you can only logistically manage that maybe two or three times a week. Sure. But we need more aerobic fitness than that, even. Interesting. And so we need to walk or hike or go for a bike ride or whatever. But you know, just general um, cardiovascular capacity. What's fascinating is today's gym culture. I will see athletes now that have almost no athletic capacity they drive to a bouldering gym (laughs) in the city yeah and they walk in and they boulder for three hours with their friends then they drive you know they go get in their car and they drive home and then they you know ride a scooter to work when they ride the escalator upstairs and they're incredibly unfit Hmm. for just moving through the world um you're a smith rock guy I mean, you don't get to go to Smith Rock without developing your aerobic capacity because you have to walk down that hill and across uh, the river and all the way over to the monkey face and then, you know, back up over the hill and then down to the river and then back the hill. And, you know, so you've, you develop that every single day. And very often 
people just don't have that habit. And so non-specific, what we'd call cardiac output training, following those same three rules is very useful. You can also use a heart rate monitor for non-specific training, uh, for non-climbing training. Um, and the, there's a real simple formula. It's not, it's not 100% accurate, but the, it's called the MAF formula, the maximum aerobic function formula. And it's simple. It's one, 180 beats minus your age. Okay. So if you're 30... Your, you know, your max heart rate for aerobic training is predicted to be about 150. Okay. Um, and that's handy if you're out for a hike or a bike ride, you can throw a heart rate monitor on. For climbing, it's not that useful because you can have a fairly low heart rate and you're completely Getting too pumped. pumped. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's not global enough. Right. Endurance is mostly in your forearm. And so I would say for most climbers, you can do that kind of training along with every other kind of training, you know, go out for a one hour walk or a hike or a bike ride with your friends every single day. Hmm. Um, and it's useful for, um, for maintaining health and for helping you recover. You know, you're, you're increasing that heart rate slightly, you're moving, um, substrate out of the system. And so it can be really useful. Um, around here, we can just go and like, you know, hike up to a crag or, you know, walk up, you know, we have a lot of trails into the mountains and, um, but it, it's, it's really useful and it seems ridiculous. People are like, oh yeah, I'm really going to go for a hike. But if you're a gym climber and you don't do a lot of movement, you could be missing out on a really simple way to get better. Like you're killing yourself doing repeaters on the hangboard every night, but you don't have the basic capacity to recover from that or to optimize that. Hmm. And so then you're, you know, everything gets stopped. Yeah. You know, and Interesting. So, so I think it's, I think, you know, again, that's the low of the low. And when we talk about high, low training, but it's, um, it's a very easy place for people to, to make up lost ground. What is something that you would prescribe if someone is in the city and they just have the bouldering gym? I mean, can you get this sort of, can you get benefit from just like going on long walks around town on flat ground? Sure. Okay. Yeah. You're probably walking kind of fast. Okay. You can also put a, a backpack on, you know, like you don't want to look like a dork and have like your, <laughs> your mountaineering pack on, but yeah. you could just, you know, throw on a day pack, but put some, you know, fill up some gallon jugs of water and it doesn't have to be super heavy, 15, 20 pounds adds load. You know, it's all the physics of moving your body around hmm. up and down stairs. Um, you know, lots of times just like walking in a hilly area of the town is, is enough. Hmm. And it's, it's, you know, you just stay in that same heart rate zone. It's a little faster than a casual walk for most people, but it's super useful. Hmm. And, and it increase it, that increases your your general aerobic capacity. You can also do general aerobic capacity training, like doing cardio equipment or weight training circuits or things like that. But keep, try to keep those those rules in mind. Okay. We don't want to go into like, you know, working out super hard, you know, like as many reps as you can possibly do, you know, you know, eating chalk and yelling Sparta, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know. So, you you know, you want to keep it kind of, kind of easy. Yeah. But that's the really interesting thing, like hard rock climbing. Like you see people climbing on like these super long routes at Seyus or whatever. For the most part, they're not just like fighting, you know, like once they've mm -hmm. got it figured out, it, they stay pretty casual. You know, you watch, you watch like Margot Hayes on La Rambla and you're like, man, that thing looks easy. I'm going to go try it. <laughs> right. Cause, cause she's so calm, hmm. you know, and they, they've got good breathing. They, you know, they're focused and, you know, yeah, you know, you throw down and you scream like crazy on the cruxes, but then they're very, very calm, you hmm. know, you, you know, and that's what we want to try to get through to these 
the boulderers that are looking to take their scales to routes is that it's really trying to be very calm and cool and collected between those super hard efforts. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. the, the quicker you can become aerobic and like after doing a crux, the quicker everything recovers. Hmm. And you've, you've probably noticed that we, we, you know, and, and this is, a, you know, f with the tangibility of it all, you start out and it's really pumpy and whatever else, and you get to a jug and you can kind of recover. But eventually as your fitness improves, you get to that jug and you're like, whoa, I really feel like I'm getting something back. Here. Yeah, totally. And that's an improvement in your body's ability to recover. And it's probably because you've specifically trained your aerobic system to get better there. There's also the emotional and mental component of calming down, which is another completely important but different facet of endurance. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Man, there's so many different ways I, I, I want to go with this. One question I have with the aerobic stuff, if someone, so let's take Jonathan, for instance. Mm -hmm. I was surprised when I did an interview with him a few months ago that he really concentrates the bulk of his year's training in one big chunk in mm -hmm. the winter. So he kind of takes an off season. Yeah. And he's primarily focused on strength and power during the first month of that. Yeah. Would you continue to have him do some of this sort of stuff? Yeah. That? Uh, like, like conditioning? Um, would, would you continue to have him focus on just aerobic, like the really low end when um, his main priority for that chunk of time is strength? Not, not him. Um, because it's so developed. Because it's so developed. He came into climbing with a, a huge general aerobic capacity mm -hmm. and he's always had a very good aerobic base. He did a ton of volume. He had, he's one of these people that could just stay at the, you know, he could stay at the climbing gym for hours and hours. And he also, interestingly, I always pity setters because they are working really hard all the time, uh -huh. high physical labor, but developing capacity. I mean, like hmm. the, the upside of that terrible job, <laughs> um, besides the awesome pay is, um, is that they, they do build a high level of work capacity. Mm -hmm. And if they ever could take time off and get their elbows to heal up, they could, they could actually go do some really crazy stuff. But he did a lot of time setting and climbing and he climbed multiple days in a row, but he developed over time a very high level of endurance. Um, endurance is not his limiter. Mm. And so really, and he, we don't ever go, oh yeah, you need to get out and do some laps on stuff. Mm -hmm. Frequently, Jonathan's training involves, um, and, and it's very, very smart because he actually climbs. Um, he, he'll train a, a day hard for strength and power, then go climbing the next day, which is by nature a capacity effort. When he's mm -hmm. first starting into a cycle, mm -hmm. he's, he's climbing some new 513s that he hasn't done and things like Or, you know, let's not, I hate to use grades, but he's climbing at a, a level like eight, eight letter grades below his limit. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing a lot of volume with that. And he's checking out new crags and things like that. And then as that cycle develops, he starts to spend time on project level things, but in small chunks. And so they're, they're still like strength and power, you know, like climbing two bolts, climbing two bolts, climbing mm. two bolts. And so we're not going too deep into the system. Yeah. But he did talk, we, we had him here for the camp and he talked a lot about the usefulness of having a sub goal. Like the big goal was La Planta de Shiva last year. But then he 
you know, was also working a 15A around Vegas mm -hmm. and, and was able to do that right before he got on the airplane, which was like confidence building, but it also meant he had a successful season. Mm -hmm. And we, we see a lot of climbers that um, are like, oh man, I, I am putting all my eggs into the basket of this one project. They will red point nothing but warm ups the entire season. And not only does their capacity suck because they don't do anything else but go to that project, but when they don't get the project, it feels like a completely wasted season. Mm. And if they had settled for doing, you know, like, it's like 15A isn't that big a deal for Jonathan's resume or for his, his ego. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's not the hardest thing he's ever done, but that's a pretty good red point. Yeah. Um, you know, if his goal is, is 15B or 15C. And so for, for a guy that's um, climbing 13A or, or an athlete that's trying to break into 12A, it's really hard for them to care about 11D or 12D. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's probably a really useful facet of building in their, in their system. And so that's a divergence from talking about aerobic capacity for, for Jonathan. But then he really does a ton of climbing volume. He has big days. And we'll do some very easy pitches at the end of the day sometimes. Like instead of just like, I gave my two burns, let's get out of here and go have a beer. He gives us two burns and then he gives one more burn and then he gives one more burn. Hmm. And then he goes and he does a couple of laps on, on a route that's like, you know, several grades below. Hmm. Um, and, and a few, the few times I have spent a whole day climbing with him, um, you know, he'll, he'll get a big day in. He's f first to go, first to leave yeah. or last to leave, first to go, last to leave. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, that adds up over time. You've read Dave McLeod's book, Nine Out of Ten Climbers Make the Same Mistakes. Yeah. Of, I mean, like, not only should we read that book once a year, <laughs> but one of the really great points that I, I continually go back to there is that the elite climbers aren't that much better. They just try a little tiny bit more each day. Hmm. You know, it's not like they somehow, you know, were ordained with greatness. And, you know, you've climbed with my friend BJ Tilden and, um, I climb with him a lot. I've climbed with him since he was 15. Yeah. And he tries harder than I do every single time he ties in. And <laughs> and like I and I, I recognize it and I've worked on it, but he, you know, that's his superpower hmm. is that he like is like, okay, game on. I'm going to kick the shit out of this warm up. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to kick the shit out of the next thing and I'm going to send this thing. And he really cares about sending where I'm like, "Oh, I'm, you know, I might I might wait and, and come back when I'm fresh and then I'll, then I'll really be able to send it and I'll be able to do it. And so I've, I climbed, I've climbed longer than he has in the lander area and he's run out of routes for the most part. <laughs> right. right. And I yeah. still have like a ton to do. So, and, and it comes down to the fact that I didn't really care as much as he did every single time. And hmm. we, you know, we've probably, since we started climbing together, um, which would have been like in 90, like early nineties. Um, you think about the number of climbing days we've each had and the number of pitches and exposures we've each had. And if you climb like a hundred days a year for 10 years, you know, there's a thousand climbing days and you do one more pitch each one of those days, <laughs> like that, that puts you in a different league than the guy that doesn't. Hmm. And so I think that that's the real, um, I would love it if there was a hangboard protocol that was the secret, but the real secret is like what you do every single day. Hmm. How you do yeah. what you do. Yeah, for sure. Like the, the habit of wanting to succeed versus, you know, like, 
you know, if you're, if you're a, you know, two beer a day guy after climbing, that's, you know, a thousand extra beers you put down, <laughs> you know, which is like, you know, what are they, a couple bucks each? There's $2,000 that you don't have to spend traveling, hmm. you know? And so I, I get a lot of shit about talking about optimizing things. Yeah. It's, it's hard to like always be on. Sure. Yeah. But if you create a habit of being on, it actually becomes quite easy. Hmm. Like if you say, I train, like I train every Friday morning, like before work, I train every Friday morning and it doesn't matter if I trained Thursday, it doesn't matter if I'm red pointing Saturday, I train every Friday morning, no matter what. Okay. So what I do on that Friday morning can vary, but I show up at the gym and I get my stuff out and I get ready to go. And sometimes it's just a warm up. Sometimes it's like easy laps, something, you know, I'm not feeling good, but I'm making it happen every Friday morning. Because if you don't have the habit of making that happen, the reason I did that was because I was starting to find that I was skipping workouts when I was tired. And, mm. You know, long, you know, I had 15 appointments that day and I'm not going to train at 5.30 at night. You know, like everybody's human. But if you create a system to succeed, then you're going to start doing those things. And so when I talk about like not drinking as much beer or creating better eating habits or not getting, you know, like... Um, not getting to the point that you're making mistakes in the evening, like, you know, always eating a gallon of ice cream or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's all about habits. And, and we, we teach that a lot cause we have a lot of, of general population, uh, athletes or that work out at our gym. They just want to lose weight and maybe be run a 5k, create a better habit. And when we talk about those habits, it's like, I like to look at the the results of people's behaviors and the first order result of a behavior is sometimes not that exciting. So like really good habits or really good behaviors don't have a first order result that you're psyched with. And let me give you an example. The first order result of drinking a lot of beer is you get drunk and you have a really good time. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, that was awesome. The second order result the next day, you're like, whoa, that was expensive. And I feel like shit today. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, and if I do that a lot, if I do it every Friday night, that has a third order result that 10 years for later, I've spent, you know, one day every single week being too hungover to perform. Mm. And so, so maybe the things that have a really positive first order result aren't the best things for us. Okay. But if I save my money um, and I spend less than I make that day, that first order result isn't that cool. You're like, well, I didn't get to buy the things I wanted. I didn't go out and drink beer. I, you know, put my money into savings instead of buying a new pair of climbing shoes or whatever it is. Not that great. At the end of the week, I'm like, well, look, I, I've saved $170 this week. Hmm. That's pretty good second order result. You're proud of those behaviors the next day. The third order result of that is awesome. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really, really cool. And, um, that's what we really want to try to develop long-term as climbers because the positive first order results tend to burn us out. And so we try to create systems to get more and more positive second and third order results for, from athletes. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit more about BJ. I actually had a listener submit some questions and one of the questions was your thoughts on why BJ is so strong and successful in his climbing. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting what you shared and it's really compelling. And I think it's 
something I was confused about for a long time is it's really easy to hear that, you know, like the difference is that he cared a little bit more every day. He did, you know, one extra pitch every day, that sort of thing. It's easy to extend that out and draw the conclusion like, oh, well, BJ doesn't do any training. Mm -hmm. He just focuses on his climbing and trying to red point and he's awesome. So therefore, why are we here in the first place? What are we talking about with all this training stuff? Yeah. So do you have thought, can you speak to that? Like the the balance there? Yeah. So there's a few things that are really useful to think about. Um, Another one of my friends, Cody Roth is a really great climber came up in as a youth climber is exceedingly good boulderer and admittedly he's like man I, I don't know the first thing about training what should I do mm. he's getting to an age now that he wants to get better like he's he lives in Italy now and he's like I'm going to the next level I can really do this but he's not sure what to do and here's a world cup athlete you know super experienced climber but now he's seeing the value of of kicking over BJ has some some fairly ambitious goals and one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is we've actually gone into some training cycles and he's done some, you know, so, so it's easy for, to go like, you know, like if we categorize him, we go, oh yeah, he never trains. It's also like, do you remember like in the old days, like, oh yeah, Sharma never warms up, right? He just jumps <laughs> on. I promise you that 40, what is he? 44 year old Sharma or whatever. <laughs> he, he, he warms up now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, but so, so BJ does do a, a fair amount of training, but always opts to climb when possible. Mm. Um, he, you know, he started off as a, as a boulderer, um, got really strong tendons and, and fingers when he was young and he may be a genetic component there, but also, you know, a dedication to the craft, like three to five days a week as a, as a 15 year old pulling on little holds. Yeah. He did a, I think he climbed V13. What is that thing? Slash face or something yep. in Waco? Yeah. A very long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he's developed like, you know, he, you either sink or swim as a young climber developing in lander and, and of his peer group, he's the only one you know, uh, the lander kids that that's really survived the other, um, he, he had a compatriot that's, but from his same time at, when he grew up in Cody, um, Leif Gash, who's, mm. a, is a great climbing coach and also a very good climber. But, you know, both of those guys came up bouldering and, and, you know, they're, they're super duper strong from their, their youth. And, you know, Leif, Leif is a dedicated trainer and, and does, you know, he's more of a normal cycle of training than BJ does, but I think BJ creates the opportunities to, to get out there and climb hard. And he also doesn't do this one stupid thing that we all do, <laughs> which is try to train even higher. Like he goes out and he goes and he climbs really hard on the weekend. And then he'll sometimes take five days off. And his, his job is, is, is physical, uh-huh. right? But sometimes he's forced to have five days off. The other thing he does, which is really, of course, brilliant, but not planned, is he'll take big chunks off in the fall, like starting September. He's, he's a really um, aggressive hunter. Um, and so he does a lot of bow hunting. Yeah, you said he's and, like a 514 bow hunter. For sure. Yeah, like, I mean, like, it's like I said, he he. he takes the time to be good at it. Hmm. And so he takes the time to go out and he spends a lot of time um, making making himself good at that thing, which is, you know, a great adjunct to climbing because so often we just think if we can just do a little bit more and just do a little bit more, but really it's doing it better and better, hmm. you know, because almost everything has this saturation point where if you double the amount of it, 
it's no longer good. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, like if you double the the tequila in your drink, <laughs> uh, it doesn't taste that good anymore, right? You know, but you're like, oh, I, I thought it would double my pleasure. I think that happened to Alex the other night. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we, were, we were laughing about that at dinner. So <laughs> whole pint of tequila. Yeah. So so BJ, um, regular training, uh, a real intuitive feel for what's enough that day. Hmm. And when I mean training, I should say regular climbing. Yeah. Um, but you know, he goes out and he and he hits it hard every single time, and um, has a really good feeling for w- what's appropriate. And and then he cycles out and does some other things. He goes on bouldering trips. He you know we for a few seasons we're going into the winds and doing alpine objectives. Hmm. Um, he you know sw- you know switch over to um, hunting in the in the fall. He does a lot of skiing in the winter. Um, and so I think it's a lot of like staying active um he you know his job's physical he's a he's a he's got a construction company and um and you know he's like everybody else he he'll turn 40 this year and so he's got the same aches and pains and stuff but he's not getting stupid with it mm. and and a lot of people are like oh yeah i'll show you and then they blow out a shoulder and then it's <laughs> like yeah then they start like road biking so. <laughs> i've i've seen that exact thing happen yeah <laughs> to, right to one of my friends yeah um his t- his time off so this time he takes off to hunt or ski is it totally time off is he not doing any climbing or yeah it depends or? i mean you know like uh the the fall season here is pretty good okay um and so you know he'll ramp up for it um and then he in the winter like the last few winters has gone to like the vrg okay um, he's he's climbed out sinks so there's no more projects here really which is the winter crag here. yeah and yeah. so the sinks the sinks winter season isn't that useful for him because it's also you know like not to diss all the rest of us but it's really not that hard of climbing there's lots of mm. 511 to 513 mm-hmm. and it's just not that challenging for him mm-hmm. um and so, you know, trips down south, trying to knock off objectives down in the VRG, you know, Necessary Evil, um, all, you know, the kind of the classics. And, and I think we'll probably see him making more trips to the Vegas area now that there's some harder things down there. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's worked really well for him and he continues to improve. And so those are the two things. Like, if you're not getting better, maybe it's time to train. Or if you have a, a really gigantic objective that takes a level of physicality that you don't have, maybe it's time to train. And that's the training that he's done. You know, the last couple of years, he's gone to uh, to France to try to do a biography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what, you know, you go to France in the spring. Um, what do you do to get ready for it? It'd be awesome if he had a full wolf point season going in there, but mm. the timing's not right. Mm-hmm. And so when he's been able to go, it's like training and, you know, on the bouldering wall and doing laps on routes at sinks and mm. you know and so that's that's how his training has sort of taken place interesting yeah but you know he's you know he's got a lot of a lot of things to juggle and his, he and his his wife emily um have two boys and you know new house growing business um emily's a, a coach at our gym and so they're like busier than beads at Mardi Gras. And so they're like, <laughs> I'm impressed that with both of you know what they can do. And Emily's still doing these like crazy 50 mile mountain runs and things. So, yeah, I remember that from I think from eight years ago. She was about to do a 50 miler or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, and, and she's just she's a crusher. That's she's, awesome. Yeah, yeah. If you think BJ's good at his sport, you should watch her. <laughs> yeah. um, I wanted to talk about a few things 
that I've been confused about over the years. Because I presumably, I don't know, maybe I'm just dumb and and slow to come around to some of these ideas. But I, I figure if I'm confused about some of these things that probably some other people are too. One of them is, you know, you talk a lot about prioritizing strength all the time. Strength is safety and, mm-hmm. and it's the foundation. It's, you know, the king facet of all these things that we need to be good climbers. I was really surprised when I interviewed Jonathan that he just has that one off season per year. Mm-hmm. And hearing you talk about BJ and how he switches it up and spends time in the winds or spends time away from climbing and spends time bouldering and really focused on strength. That's really interesting too. So how are you thinking about off seasons or training seasons for climbers versus titrating in like a little bit of supplemental training consistently throughout the year? Yeah. Um, well, strength is real, really interesting because we all understand its use, but some people think of it as this infinite resource to continue to be improved. Mm. And, and so it's really, it's fascinating. We, um, we were chatting i think yesterday and there's like this whole there's a crazy like controversy about deadlifting okay which, which is like i think deadlifting's bad for climbing i think deadlifting's good for climbing and i'm like you know jesus like you know we really advocate deadlifting to be a basically strong human being and no it's not supposed to be like let's get rid of the the campus board and just deadlift instead but it's also like a very small time commitment mm. and so staying strong or being strong enough is really the main key. Um, becoming a strength athlete is not. And mm. so that's the thing, again, if we look at a enough or a saturation point. So when we look at strength, we very often people are like, oh man, that's bodybuilding or that's weight training or I have to stop climbing to do it. Mm. But really we're just trying to find this optimal level of supplemental strength for an athlete. And I had a, I had a couple interesting experiences with learning about the usefulness of strength training. The first of which was going to the Olympic training center for, I was there for a cycling certification and we took a tour of the facility and, um, we go through the weight room and there's, they have all these racks set up and all these Olympic plates and whatever. And there's this whole bunch of women lifting in there and, you know, they're doing clean and jerk and, you know, snatches and you're just, and they're wicked strong and you're just like, holy cow. And, one of the people commented is like, man, like how often are the Olympic weightlifters training here? And the guy's like, no, no, this is the women's triathlon team. Hmm. Um, but you know, they're, you know, but they train weights all the time. Hmm. And the idea there is that you cannot fully maximize strength or your potential for strength with sports specific modes with climbing. We're so far out. Like when we, when I grab a little crimp, I can't generate as much force as if I grab a pull-up bar, mm-hmm. you know, like I, if I'm going to stand up on one little tiptoe on an edge, I can't generate the kind of force that I could with my foot on the floor. And so if I can teach myself to generate that force non-specifically, then I can apply it specifically later. Hmm. You know, you can increase your capability of strength. And so it's really interesting that it becomes controversial because the time commitment is very, very low. Um, one of the things I think is, is a really fascinating exercise is to first learn how to do a deadlift and then do two sets of two twice a week. <laughs> so two sets of two, you know, say it takes you, it may take you six seconds to do two deadlifts and then rest for, you know, a minute and then you do another set. And so that's what, that's a minute and 12 seconds <laughs> that you need to spend and then you do it twice. So that's going to be less than three minute time commitment a week. So don't, 
Are know, there warm up sets or you can do warm up sets, but at first you probably don't need to if you're just going to start out and like okay. pick up the you know pick up the 45 pound bar. The other thing is like do it alongside other training. Like if you're going to be hangboarding or climbing or whatever, but don't feel like you need to go into Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia <laughs> of modern bodybuilding and and pick out a workout. Hmm. You know you don't need to do body part splits. You don't need to follow a workout of the day. You know. Go pick up some weight off the floor a couple of times, do some heavy pull-ups a couple of times, do some heavy push-ups a couple of times, and that's going to be plenty for most people. Hmm. Um, and so the reason that we have people do that is so that we can reach this base level of stability and strength, which is quite easy to maintain if you stay active. And that's where somebody like BJ or like Jonathan, they climb more and they are more physically active than 90% of the people that we advise. Mm. You know, I, I'm advising lots of people that are the drive to the bouldering gym crew. Okay. And so what I look for with, with somebody like Jonathan is how long can he maintain that strength? So if you build up to a really high level of max pull-ups, for example, and you're a boulderer, you can probably take six months off and still be within 10% of that high level, Mm. six months off of weight training. Um, and just boulder and maintain it. And so that's what, that's where we see with, with Seagrass training is like, he wants to develop a level of strength and then he checks in with it throughout the, the year. And oh, he like, does. Can I still do this? Yeah. Okay. You know, he, but it's like, it's pretty easy. And, and if you were to actually go get metrics, uh, here's a really cool thing, Steven. We, um, I did a, a hangboard cycle of like pretty much three days a week, but sometimes two days a week, strength-based all the way through last September and October. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to test my numbers. Just a force number, simple force number on a 10 deck. And do you have a 10 deck? No. So it's just a strain gauge. Okay. Um, it's T-I-N-D-E-Q and they're, they're out of uh, Scandinavia somewhere. I can't remember if it's Norway or Sweden, but it just kicks to an app on your phone, tells you how much you pulled. You can also get a crane scale like at Harbor Freight or something. So are you, are you like your feet are on the ground and you're yep. pulling with one yeah, hand as hard Yeah, you brace yourself. You hold, we usually will put you under a bar, um, like sit on a bench, put a bar across your lap so it won't pick you up. Okay. And then you put the, at the uh, like a tension block on the strain gauge and so you can pull and it'll tell you how many pounds you pull okay and so we'll go you know i'll pull with my right hand and it's like you know 160 pounds left hand's a little bit stronger weirdly it shouldn't be but it's like maybe 171 pounds okay so i got to the end of this training cycle tested both of those things and then i was like okay i'm going to keep hangboarding with less volume and less frequency so i went down to two days a week and tested two weeks later numbers are still high um went down to one day a week tested two weeks later, numbers are still high. Went down to one day of hangboarding every 10 days and then went to one day, one day of hangboarding every two weeks. And I was able to maintain within 5% of those numbers with one short hangboard session every two weeks and just normal climbing. Wow. Um, all, all the way up until, well, we were going to go to Greece right at the end of, of March. We didn't end up going. But yeah, so it's, what's that, six months? Yeah. You know, it's five months. But the take-home is that even though you're not overloading yourself and feeling wiped out by hangboarding, maybe your fingers are still strong. Mm. And so that's the really, really important thing. And so I could conceivably do, and then of course I went back into hangboard with COVID. So I could conceivably even, I'm 50 now, and so I could conceivably do it two times a year for four to six weeks and then maintain that strength. Okay. And so that's the thing. It's like we don't have to relentlessly pursue it, but we do have to keep it. Mm. 
And um, that's the one of the big things that happens with climbers is they'll stop training something and it just goes away. And so it, it, the the real trick, the real skill is finding out how little of something you can do and still keep it. Um, and, and you feel that with climbing all the time, like, whoa, I have not been climbing because my footwork's terrible and I'm feeling nervous up here and my movement is crappy. So we need to do more of that to keep it. Mm. Um, it you know, like, you know, whatever, you know, if it's our cardiac output, if it's our uh, aerobic endurance, like most people have a way of checking in on that. Do I, do I have this basic endurance? And you can create a test for yourself. There's a lot of testing available, but just like come up with something like, oh, I always go out and if I can do, like there's a there's a route here called Killer in the Killer Cave mm -hmm. um, in Sinks Canyon. Um, and it's a, a kind of an endurance route. And um, if I go out and I can do that, I'm like, okay, that feels pretty good as my base level of endurance, you know? Okay. And so you just have that as your check-in route, you know, maybe like you're Smith and you're like, can I still, you know, huck a lap on Agro Monkey or whatever? Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, yep, yeah, okay, still, you know, my endurance is pretty, pretty good. Um, maybe can I do the moves on this boulder, you know, my landmark V9? You don't have to have like a bunch of equipment. You, know? mm. you just have to have something that keeps you accountable to some level, hmm. you know, cause so many of us are just like, was I tired after that session? Oh, that must've been good training. Um, and so, yeah. So going back all the way back to our original strength thing, figure out a, a number that's pretty good. And then am I strong enough? And like for climbers, let's not get super complicated. People love percentages and how many times body weight and whatever. But I really feel like, you know, you should be able to do a few pull-ups, most climbers at, at, at any level. And most climbers that are, you know, above the like 512 level are really going to benefit from being able to like do a pull-up and hold the lock off with one arm. Mm. You, know, you don't, I don't think a one arm pull-up is necessary, but you got to be able to hold the lock off. Okay. Um, you know, then we want to maybe the same thing with your legs. You should be able to do a pistol squat, mm. um, you know, single leg squat from the floor. Most people, it's a little easier to put like a light dumbbell in their hands just because of the balance. The counterbalance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, if you can't do that, maybe that's something real simple that's holding you back. Mm. Cause if you have really weak legs, topping out boulders can be really hard. You know, being able to press out certain moves with crappy holds can be really hard. And that's an easy thing that you can work on when your skin hurts or whatever. And again, that couple of sets, short, short session, pretty easy to throw in. And most climbing gyms now have a little weight room that you can, you can hit in mm. between boulders or whatever. And, um, and, and it can be really useful. So as far as pursuing relentlessly strength, yes, for some people that don't have it, but other people, if they've got sufficient levels of it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's super necessary. Hmm. When you get to be old, when you're like, like really it's about, it's, it's a slowly declining scale, but people start to lose a lot of muscle mass starting sometimes in their mid thirties, but definitely by their fifties or sixties. And when we lose muscle mass, we start losing explosivity and, you know, strength of course, but more importantly, we lose the ability to move quickly. Hmm. And so loss of muscle mass might just manifest in, whoa, look, I'm lighter than I was, <laughs> but it's not necessarily a good thing. Hmm. And so that uh, older climbers and, um, f and female climbers that maybe even starting in their 20s, um, because they don't have the same hormonal profile as males, well, I think weight training is very useful for them to maintain a useful amount of muscle mass. Because hmm. um, I can still, you know, I can still climb pretty close to my limit but I'm definitely weaker and I definitely have less power. 
Um, and if, but if I lose a lot of muscle mass, eventually that's going to hit a real hard stop. Mm-hmm. And if I can just maintain a little bit of that for a couple more years, um, I'm going to have a you know much happier career. You know, because like you don't you know like climbing can still be fun, but part of the game is is like trying to do something hard for you and reach out there. And you know you you know as you lose mass and you lose ability to do things powerfully that's that's hard on us you know mm-hmm. everybody's like oh man i can't do this anymore mm-hmm. you know and that and that, so i think that that you know to some degree weight training becomes more important as we get older okay i want to lead in with that to another thing that i was confused about for a long time for a long time i was really hung up on this idea of finding the best thing so the best exercises the best rep protocol the mm-hmm. best program right yeah and i didn't understand i would read you know, so much of your material and other material as well, and read all these really compelling arguments for kettlebells versus deadlift versus mm-hmm. bodyweight stuff. And, you know, not to mention you have a whole hangboard manual with yeah. all these really great protocols in it. Yeah. And I was really stuck on trying to understand like, okay, well, like which of these is the best, the king thing to do. Yeah. And it, it took me a long time to realize like, oh, you, you cycle through these things because you get stuck, you stop adapting and you get yeah. stuck. But then if you move on to something new, those gains don't just drop away. It doesn't take right. much and you can, you can maintain them through maybe parallel exercises, parallel things. Yeah. yeah do you have any, any more thoughts on, yeah. on how you think about like moving people through different exercises, different programs, different hangboard protocols versus sticking to something long enough to really get benefit from it? Yeah. Um, I would say the logical progression programs are the best. <laughs> awesome. <No. laughs> All right. Well, good to talk to you. Yeah. No, um, no, so that's a really interesting thing. I've the, been looking for years. Yeah, I know. No, finding the best is really interesting. And, <laughs> and here's the thing is like anybody that tries to sell you the best is lying to you, <laughs> right? And that's, it's really fascinating because I am... Um, Two of my my good friends are Mike and Mark Anderson. Yeah, and I really like, like at least once a month I get an art uh, email that's like I used to do the Andersons program, but I realized that it's not that good. <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, I did it for six years, and you know, I went from twelve A to you know thirteen C, but now I'm stuck, and I realize that I shouldn't have been doing it. But mm. you, it's exactly what you're alluding to is like that is one of if you're looking for the best that. May, you know, like I go back and read that book and I'm like, whoa, this shit is really good. Mm. I mean, it might be one of the best programs ever written, but if you've done it many, many, many times, it stops having it's the same exciting effect for you um, uh, phys- physically. I mean, emotionally, yeah, you might be bored with the workouts, but if it's not producing the results for you or if it got you from 12A to 13B, you know, mission accomplished, let's mm. move on. Mm. Um and one of the, I, I got asked this question before and I was like, well, what's the best ethnicity of food? <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. I like Mexican food. Mm-hmm. I also like Thai food. I also like Indian food. And it's not like once I had Indian food, I'm never going back to Mexican. And, and your body responds that way. Hmm. Um, and sometimes we respond well to high volume. Sometimes we respond well to reducing rest. Sometimes we respond well to super high, uh, high loading. And I think the really important thing is to completely commit to going all the way through a program and taking everything you can out of it and then assessing, should I do it again? Should I modify it? Or should I move on to a completely different style of program? Hmm. And, and I think the secret is to 
look behind the curtain on that program because we know the exercises aren't magical. So if you, for example, decide to do, um, you know, cable pulls instead of pull-ups, great. Either one of them is, a, is an upper body pulling exercise. One is not better than the other, but your body might adapt really well to one over the other. Hmm. Same thing. It's like, you know, are, are wood hangboards or plastic hangboards better? Yes. <laughs> you know, depending what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's really important to go, do I understand what the, the planned adaptation is from this training? And did I get that out of it? Um, if you do like a whole series, like if you actually follow the whole Rock Prodigy training program all the way, like I, I see so many people are like, yeah, I started out and I did, started doing that arc training and it just it felt stupid. So I did limit bouldering instead. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, number one, I know that didn't work out. And number two, you didn't see it come to fruition. Mm. You know, like if it's a 12 week program, there's a reason it's a 12 week program. It's not like they're like, well, you can just do it in one week, but we don't know what else to do the next 11. <laughs> and so it's really, uh, it's really important that people follow, follow the things through. And there's reasons that they take that long to adapt. And that we see that a lot with what's the best hangboard program. Should mm. I do repeat or should I do max hangs? Like the answer is of course, again, yes. But did you go all the way through the repeaters program? Did you see it through until you saw these adaptations? And very often, I would say 95% of the time, the answer is no. Hmm. You know, was your compliance uh, over 75%? No. And so what we really want to see is let's go all the way through and see what my, my body and my mind and my muscles can do with this, you know? And it's interesting because it's so feels like when you're doing training, they're like, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. What's going on? But that a lot of physiological adaptations take a while hmm. to teach your body that, okay, yeah, you do actually need to put some investment into thicker tendons in my fingers. Cause your body always wants to get rid of expensive tissue. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't want to maintain muscle mass. It's expensive to keep. And so when we look at an athlete that's like stopping programs because they don't feel like they're working, I love the analogy of an ice cube. Cause you have an ice cube sitting on your counter and it's 25 degrees and then you turn on the thermostat and it starts warming up the house and it's 26 degrees and 27 degrees and 28 degrees and 29 degrees and nothing is happening mm -hmm. and 30 degrees and 31 degrees and nothing is happening. And you're like, this is bullshit. <laughs> right. But then at 32 degrees, the magic happens and the ice cube melts. And so often we don't wait long enough for that to happen. Wow. Yeah. Right. And so, so that's why you, you know, yes, do the program. And if it's hurting your shoulder or if it takes too much time and your wife's getting pissed at you or, or those things, yeah, let's make adjustments. Mm. But just going like, yeah, that, that one's not so good. You know, it, it's, it's important to, to understand that it probably takes a long time. The other thing that I started to talk about is like looking behind the curtain of what, what the workout is actually made up of. What's the adaptation going to be? You know, what's the work to rest cycle? Am I, am I addressing the things that are going to get me the strongest? Cause if I go and I start doing, um, like super high rep body weight workout, hoping that I'm going to make my legs stronger, it's not going to work. And so if you're expecting something out of a program, you should also understand what the intent of that program is. Mm. And you can just email the person. If it doesn't say so in the intro, email the person, what's this program meant to do? Um, they'll be able to tell you. And if they can't tell you, then don't do the program. <laughs> right? They're like, oh, uh -huh. it'll, you're going to be so tired. It's going to yeah. kick your ass. You know, 
And that's the thing is like, if, if that's the intent, you know, of, of creating a sense of fatigue and making you sweaty, you know, they, they, you know, we're looking at performance. I don't care how tired you are. In fact, I want you less tired. Mm. So the, like, but I, I would say, you know, if you, unless you went all the way to the end of the program on these things, you maybe didn't see what was supposed to happen. Mm. You know, and that's why, you know, college takes four years and, you know, <laughs> cookies take t- 22 minutes to bake and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh-huh, yeah. So, yeah. I want to dig into that a little deeper in your hangboard manual. Okay. So, you know, you have this whole manual with all these incredible programs in there and they are all meant to do slightly different things, mm-hmm. but there is also a lot of crossover. Yeah. How would you approach that with an athlete? I, I guess speaking very generally, where might we look for the balance between sticking with something long enough to really go through that whole process versus switching it up so that our body doesn't stagnate or, or yeah. adaptations don't stagnate? Yeah. Well, I think a, a really fascinating thing is over expectation of results. Like I'm going to start hangboarding and it is going to be glorious, right? No, you've done enough hangboarding to know that like if, if I see any kind of improvement in strength, um, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really fascinating. And especially when you have a high level climber, somebody that's trained as much as you have. If I put you through my eight week hangboard program and your fingers get stronger, you know, we test you on the, on the strain gauge before and after, or you do a max hang, you know, test like the, you know, Mesha's test is really great. You know, the, the, you hang on the, hang on the hangboard. If you can hang for 10 seconds, add a little bit more weight. As soon as you can't make it that long, write down that number mm-hmm. you know, easy, easy. And, and then you can see those numbers improve. If, if you don't have a 10 deck, it's very easy to do that, but you can, you know, you get on the hangboard and you spend your eight weeks of you know, two to three days a week doing it. And if I see any kind of improvement out of you, I consider that a wild success. Right. And most people are like, Oh, it wasn't enough. But like I've, uh, we do a lot of like fat loss pe- stuff with people and they want, you know, they've gained too much weight and they want to lose weight. And I love to talk to people about trying to get into a mindset of losing weight at the same rate at which they gained it. You know, cause people are like, well, I, I gained 15 pounds over the last year and I'd like to drop that by the end of January here. And you're like, okay, it's not going to work and it's not healthy for you and whatever. So you can go into those things, but you know, what if we, what if we aim to lose half a pound a year for the, you know, for, you know, the next four years and they're, they're just like, that's ridiculous. I, I can't imagine, you know, it's the same lottery kind of thinking, like they want it all now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so what we, what I really do when I getting people into these hangboard programs is like, let's, we want to get you stronger or slightly build your strength endurance, but it's not going to be a miracle. It's just moving the, the, the die a little bit that way. Mm. The main goal of, of hangboarding in my mind is to avoid an acute injury from hard bouldering or campusing or, you know, trying a hard crux on a, on a route. Um, yeah, it's great to get stronger, but it's, it's also better to be injury proof. Mm. And so we really try to work on making sure that those athletes don't get hurt. And I really, um, advocate testing before and then do the program if you make it through eight weeks of somewhat hard hangboarding, there's a benefit whether you like feel way stronger or not. Okay. You know, the tendons yeah. are getting stronger. You don't feel improved structure in your fingers and tendons and wrists and all that stuff. You, you know, it, but it ha- it's happening. And it really happens at these, at these 
somewhat lower loads than you expect. Mm. We, we see significant strength gains in, in isometric training uh, really above about 70% of max. Yeah, Ken just said that. Same yeah. thing. And yeah. so, so why not be closer to 70% than 100%? You know, there are people that are relentlessly pursuing higher loads on the hangboard. And they're, you know, I'm like, you know, we, we have literally one way to go. Like, because, you, you know, like you'd like, oh, sweet, I stuck it and I could, I could hang 55 pounds off my waist. Now I'll try 60 pounds, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it happens in weight training all the time. They're always going to the next level. What I really want is for you to build enough of a base of your adaptation persistence to return to this level more quickly season mm. after season. Mm. And let's let's see what 70% loads look like and and i've written a couple of programs and people are like it's ridiculous i you know that program was so easy and you know I, I was never tired after it and i'm like okay that's that's what we want is for you i would what i really want is for a, a, my athletes my optimum training program is one where the athlete never feels taxed never feels like they're almost going to get hurt, never feels like they can't go do it because it's too much, mm-hmm. um, and they continue to get much, much better. But it's very hard emotionally because we we feel like we need to be in, in the like a montage in Rocky you know, every time we go training, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, enough it should be enough. Like, you know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. I mean, I think we, we all go to excess thinking there's like a linear way that we're improving. Like if I just can, again, double this up, I'm going to double my results, right? And there's so many analogies and so many ways to look at it. But the main thing is going back to, did I climb more hard routes? Did I, did I produce an, an environment where I had more good days? And so if, if I can create a training program for you, where you are able to have more high-level performances or more enjoyable days at the crag, like you had 47 of them in 2019, if we can make it to 50, awesome training program. Hmm. If you feel proud of the things that you did and you're, you're getting better at you know, your footwork and whatever else, the application, it, it really does matter. Hmm. Jonathan and, and Ken might have um, talked about this because it was pro- profound for both of us. We had a, this great training camp. Segrist came in and taught, um, he taught three full sessions on the hangboard. And then he, he talked at the end about applied training. And he like, how do you, because we, we know tons of people. We, he and I talk all the time. He's like the weakest 9A climber, right? But he's also climbed, he's the most, Jonathan Segrist is the most accomplished red point climber in American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's because he is a red point climber. Then he talked about how there's so many days that, well, he had an experience with a friend where he, they went to the crag and this friend almost sent something super hard route. And Jonathan's like, yeah, dude, that was awesome rest up, you know, give it another burn. And the guy's like, no, you know, I think I'm going to go train, (laughs) you know? And it was really profound for Jonathan because, you know, the guy is going to go home and train and he's going to be like, yeah, I kicked the ass on the, you know, I went and I did my full session. I feel really good about it. And Jonathan said 99% of the time you come out of a training session and you feel really good about what you did. You're like, I did, I, I went in there and I did my work. And he said, when you're working on a hard project and you're getting your ass kicked, 99% of the time you come down from the crag feeling shitty about yourself, <laughs> but you have to fight 
against going for that 99% of feeling good, hmm. you know? And so, you know, yeah, go back up on the project, even though you, you get the beat down hmm. and, and clearly that formula seems to work for him. Mm-hmm. And there's so many of us that, you know, aren't going to put that work in, aren't going to do that extra burn, aren't going to go to the point that we're going to feel crappy about, you know, about ourselves. But the thing is, is going back to these second and third order results is um, there's a lot of enjoyment when you finally make it and do those, those awesome routes and those Mm. things that limited you forever. Mike Anderson talked about how people said that his training wasn't fun. And he (laughs) said, well, sending hard routes is fun. (laughs) And so you do the unfun stuff in the gym and then you get to do the fun stuff at the crag. Hmm. All right. I want to respect your time. So I want to start wrapping up here. Um, I have one more question that I'd love to ask you from Alec Peterson, one Mm -hmm. of the patrons on the show. He wanted to know what area of climbing training is most exciting to you right now. Um, for me, it's, would be applied skill development. Um, cause yeah, you know, we, we know how to get stronger and we know how to develop more power. And I've spent the last two years, re- well, gosh, longer than that, but really working on, like, I, I wrote this whole book on endurance and I don't know how to like wrap it up, you know, mm. but I have like, you know, 300 pages of like ideas and workouts and notes. And a lot of it's, it's all based on this high, low stuff. And really, like, how much time do we spend on, you know, alactic stuff? And then how much time do we spend peaking? How do we set up the year? And so I've really been into that. But with the understanding that I I love this 75-25 rule, that 75% of your time should be skill-based climbing and 25% goes into training. And so I'm very interested in the 75% now. And, um, you know, working on different drills and I've, you know, I've been climbing for 35 years or something and, um, like working on getting better at that age is really hard to think like, I need to be better at this. Hmm. But so many of us fall into this trap of like, you know, I climb 12A or I climb 13A or I climb 14A. So I'm awesome. And all I need to do is get better endurance or make my fingers stronger. Hmm. But one of the things that's really interesting is that all of us can improve our skills and our movement. And, you know, we, we analyze tons of video and watch lots of people climb and you can move better. And again, like if we go to the, go to the gym and put, put, put in any of the testing protocols that we have, I'm going to kill, you know, elite climbers that are way above my level on so many of these strength things. And so we know that those are, are very peripheral to performance, Mm. but learning good movement and, and learning about good ways of structuring and breaking down skills into useful drills is, is a really interesting part of, uh, of what we're trying to learn about now. Mm. Like, how do you actually do it? It's like, yeah, go in and work on heel hooks, you know? And, um, and so f- learning about structuring practice, how much, how, how long does a, a useful practice session take, you know, how many iterations of something that you need to do. And, and the, the fascinating thing is there's a lot of science on it and lots of people that do it. Like musicians know how to practice. Gymnasts know how to practice. There's a lot of, of sports where practice is the thing. Mm. And we um, just need to learn how to break climbing down into the most useful bits and then develop those skills until 
we can put them all together into into applied stuff. And so, as far as my a facet of training, which doesn't feel like you know like you know hangboarding or whatever, <laughs> uh, skill skill development really is it. Like hmm. how can we how can we take you know climbing and then improve the movement even when we're not climbing. Hmm. And so that's going to be I think that's going to be the um, the next big push over these these next few years because we have a lot of really strong people that are really terrible rock climbers <laughs> awesome um i want to talk a little bit about your new book oh yeah yeah so logical progression edition two yeah so logical progression is a book i wrote i think five years ago uh, maybe six years ago now and it was um it's based on the idea of nonlinear programming so switching every single workout between doing a strength-based movement, doing some explosive power movement, and then doing some kind of energy system development. Um, and so it's a very simple and very effective training program for many people. And again, like talking about best, some people switch to this and they're like, oh my God, it's a revolution for me. But then it, it plays out like anything else. The thing that I found that's really neat is you can take and change the specific workouts mm. in it and say like, oh, I'm going to switch from doing you know, max hang and deadlifting. I'm going to start doing um, a 713 repeater pro protocol with some bodyweight training. And that's just changing the strength facet mm. and things continue to improve. So you keep the same framework. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it works very well. And we've had people do it for years. Hmm. And in fact, Leif Gash, um, who's a, like I said, he's a, a climbing coach. He does m a ton of programs that are variants of nonlinear stuff and has, you know, wild success with his, with his athletes. And, and we do too with our, our climb strong coaching, but I think there's a, a next level and the next level there is being able to address specific facets of our fitness that are more important at certain times of the year, mm. but then being able to maintain those things. And much like we talked about with like having a maintainable level of strength, if I can go into a block of programming and focus on my finger strength, um, how much endurance do I have to do? How much power do I need to be developing while I'm really putting my eggs into the strength basket? Mm. Um, how much endurance can I get away with before I start not recovering from strength? And and we come up with this pretty nice basic structure of a three-day rotating cycle where you would do a strength day, um, another strength day, and then a, a day that maintains all the other as, uh, aspects of your fitness. Like, so you do an, a day that combines some endurance and power. Okay. And then we go back through that cycle of three days of training. And so then you and, go like... And that's in a week? Um, you, some people, but again, it's just a three-day cycle, like the nonlinear stuff. Okay. Um, so if you're climbing, and I really advocate climbing while you're doing this. Mm -hmm. So you and I are going to climb Wednesday nights after work and on Sundays. And so then Wednesday night after work, we go to the crag. It wasn't that long a day. And so um, Thursday, we come in and we do a strength workout. Saturday, we come in and do strength workout number two. Then we go to the crag on Sunday. And then maybe Tuesday, we would do the maintenance workout of power and endurance. And then maybe Wednesday, we'd be back at the crag. And so sometimes it would fit in. Sometimes it's too much. And so you mm. just keep pushing that down the, down the road. Okay. And one of the things we see with older athletes is they can do the same programs. They just need more rest days. Mm. And so if I just say, do this cycle four times through, so you'll end up doing three workouts, you know, for a total of 12 workouts. You're younger than I am. Maybe you can do it in four weeks. Maybe I need more recovery in that same program. 
um, where I can do all the same intensities and whatever else just takes me six weeks. Mm. And that's fine to do. Okay. Um, people need to be willing to break the, the mindset of I do this on Monday and I do this on Thursday and whatever else. And especially as we age, we need more rest in between. And so these, these more flexible cycles are nice. So you just, you just keep the sequence going. You go strength day, strength day, maintenance day, okay. strength day, strength day, maintenance day. And again, putting it in the framework of like, I'm actually a rock climber too. Mm. We have, we run into so many climbers that like they get one trip a year and they train all the rest of the time. And like, I, I do one ski trip a year, but I don't do <laughs> jack shit to get better at skiing because I couldn't handle it. Mm. So kudos to these people that stay psyched that much. Yeah. But I still think you're a gym climber. You only get to go one trip a year to Red Rocks. It should still be like, I'm going to go to the climbing gym and climb cool stuff mm. um, a few days a week and just like build skills organically mm-hmm. and then spend some time getting stronger. Mm. Because like I said, if you're just getting strong, um, you know, your footwork sucks and you don't know how to move. <laughs> and that's, um, that's, we see that a lot where people put up unbelievable numbers and, you know, then you're like, oh, man, I can't believe you only climb, you know, whatever. <laughs> day, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Is that new edition of the book, is that a one-stop shop for someone who is self-coached and wants to try your program? I think it is. Okay. And and then, you know, one of the understandings is that no no exercise and no session is magical. And But I really do think programming matters. And so if you're like, well, I would really rather do this hangboard program during the strength day. You know, I su- suggest two or three in there. Mm-hmm. Um do, do yours. That's great. Mm. You know, if you, if, uh, you know, front squats make your shoulder go numb or, um, you, you know, you don't have good hip mobility, you can do a, a different leg exercise. You know, you can change things around and still see those general effects. The most important thing, and it's just like you said, is trying out some, a different, uh, set and rep protocol, a different sequence of days, different durations of, you know, whatever, those will have training effects and they might really please you. And so what you've been doing might not be the best thing. Mm. Um, the, the great saying is what, what got you here won't get you there. Mm. And so what you've always been doing isn't going to work. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at, um, a, a slogan, like, you know, like you see, hear these really stupid sayings like, um, make America great again. Right. But America is not the same as it was in whatever era we thought it was great. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, like you go, well, you know, like make your training awesome. Like it was before, like the first time you ever climbed something, you probably got better like the very first day. And you just like, I'm going to go back to top roping five sevens. Cause I, I went up three letter grades after that. <laughs> and that's, that's where you get into these like crazy mindsets and, and not to, not to go too hard on, on the make America great again thing, but we lose sight of what things were really like at that time. Mm. And in, and so if it was, you know, like, man, I should just go back to my original training. Well, you were 17 years old and you didn't know what the heck you were doing, but you were so hormonal and so low skilled that almost anything would make you better. <laughs> and so we need to really keep keep out of the mindset of falling into like, oh yeah, that was better. That was awesome. I should go back to that. No, you need to keep moving forward into, you know, what people are learning and what people are getting done these days. Mm. 
Do you think the second edition of the book is worth buying for someone that owns the first edition? Yeah, it is, especially if you've gone through the nonlinear stuff and had had some success with it, but you're like, okay, it feels like it's playing out. This this is a clear and good second step. Okay. Um, like awesome. you can you can take that nonlinear stuff and go, oh, I can move into block programming really easily because I understand how this looks. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Right on. I ask all my guests this. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? Um, I am, you know, it's it's interesting because I've been thinking about that. Uh, I have a one line a day journal. Okay. Um, that um, is is really interesting because I don't I don't write much, but you write one sentence a day, and um, and I've been very consistent with it. Do it right before I go to bed. But our lives are super crazy right now, and um, I've been married to Ellen for. 16 years and and we you know we've you know like every, everything you just you just kind of cruise along and you have this relationship but this last year have been you know especially since you know the covid stuff so grateful for for her in that it's never been so clear that her strengths support my weaknesses hmm. as far as like keeping our gym going and you know, our kids got kicked out of school. And so she, mm. she homeschooled them. She's ramping up to like, maybe we have to homeschool them again this year, but she does all the management of the gym, all the management of climb strong, make sure we have insurance, um, you know, writes in for the, the COVID grants, you know, does all of this stuff. And it's just an unbelievably better experience living that I have with her. And so I was just writing about that last night. So <laughs> good timing on the question. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Steve, it's been wonderful to catch up with you again. And, yeah. uh, you know, I rolled in Friday night right before you had, uh, you were going to go out to dinner with all your coaches. You guys mm -hmm. had just done like a, a pre-weekend kind of get together to chat about things for the weekend. And you invited me out to dinner and I was, I was just so struck with how welcome I felt coming back, you know, for the first time in eight years and meeting most of your coaches for the first time. And it just, you can't miss meeting your crew, you can't miss, um, how much of a, a family it is, how much of a team it is, how, um, how much respect there is for you in that space. And you've really built something cool here and it's helping a lot of people. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah we, we're really fortunate. We got a, a group of really special people that are, that are on board with us and, and it, it makes our lives all that much better. So <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to get you to stick around more. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Do you think you learned anything this weekend? Oh, for sure. And it's, it's, it's great. And I feel like kind of a cheater cause I set up the, <laughs> I set up the weekend and then I'm like, okay, you know, we're going to teach you all this stuff. And and then, you know, the people that come to these things are, you know, they really know their stuff. They are mm. really good. And so we learn from them, learn from other people. You know, I, I taught a lot of this stuff, but our team are so good at what they do. Like Alex and Amanda taught all of the strength stuff. And like, I, you know, like I, I started them out, you know, and taught them a lot of things, but I am like totally willing to say that I'm the worst coach in our, in our crew now. <laughs> um, Cause like I'm watching them teach and I'm like, well, this is awesome. It's really good. And so it was fun. And, and of course, every time I talked to Jonathan, I learned something more. Hmm. And even, you know, even though I just turned 50, I still super want to get better and I still want to reach, you know, one more grade or hit a few more goals. And so that kind of, that kind of talk is super valuable for me. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been, this has been fantastic. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I need to let you go. So. Right. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> yeah. So good to see you and thanks so much for your time. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Cheers.
We got the rise. 